Hello, Podrishioners. My name is Kevin Callahan, and I'm the Discipleship and Formation Pastor here at Woodland Hills. Before we get into the sermon, we want to briefly share a video with you. But since you're only listening to this podcast, that's a little tricky. So what follows is the audio from that video. It includes some thoughts from Greg, our teaching pastor Paul Eddy, and yours truly. I think you'll get the gist. Here you go. At Woodland Hills, we want to make as big a splash for the kingdom as possible. Um, and we do that through podcasts and things like that and through our writings. But uh, to really get the kingdom on the inside takes more than just hearing a sermon once a week or reading a book. So my life changed when I experienced at age 26 a, an intensive, communal, school of a ministry apprenticeship. And when I met Greg in the early 80s, we found out that both of us resonated with that type of experience. We've always dreamed for like 25 years that this would happen at Woodland Hills. Aspen Discipleship is Woodland Hills Church's new theological and ministry equipping school, or what we refer to as our seminary for everybody. Uh, we're excited that in the fall of 2018, we're going to be launching an intensive nine-month school. It's called the School of Missionary Apprenticeship. The kind of experience we're talking about is an intensive, ongoing, communal uh, experience where people are getting both deep, rich theology, but also the practical side of discipleship, of spiritual formation, and of pulling those two worlds together uh, into a really unique thing that we're calling Aspen. I had a lot of great teachers informing my head, uh, but there was nothing done that was shaping my character, that was challenging me uh, in terms of my, my own spirituality, uh, teaching me about having a passionate prayer life, uh, teaching me about the importance of, of community and covenant and relationships, uh, teaching me about uh, the one another's of the New Testament and practicing those and integrating those into my, my life. All that was missing. We want to have a school that, that does the head stuff. You know, I, we want to challenge people intellectually, but we also want to challenge them spiritually and relationally and helping to form their character. An aspen grove uh, is a set of trees that shares the same massive root system. All the trees are actually connected. They have the same exact DNA and they draw their life from the same source. They also share their life energy that they get with each other through the root system. And this is a beautiful metaphor for community. Our vision for the church and for missions is that we wanna create vibrant, life-giving communities that are grounded in Jesus, sharing their life with him and with each other and for the sake of others in the world around them. And an Aspen metaphor is just a perfect picture of community. Look, I'm a Bible and theology professor at a Christian university, so I believe in the Christian university. But I'd say this to young people, maybe you're called to the Christian University, there's a time and place for that, but I know in my life, I graduated from college and then had this kind of experience before I went to seminary. It fits in different places, different times, and different people's lives, but an intensive experience like this in a community context is something you really don't get anywhere else. This isn't just for locals here in St. Paul or Minnesota. Uh, anyone from any part of the globe can, can attend, and I encourage our parishioners and others uh, to consider uh, taking nine months out of their life and joining this community. Students from uh, all over the world or all over the country will be uh, living in host homes with host families during the nine months or they'll be living in shared community housing during the nine months. And that's an intentional part of the program where they're embedded in community so they can share life with other Jesus followers that will support their training experience and their learning experience in the school. I think what we see God doing in this world is raising up groups all over this planet 
that are recognizing a Jesus-looking God who's calling them to be a Jesus-looking people. That these are communities, young people, the next generation who are getting this. And we think Aspen can actually be a real resource to this growing movement, this kingdom movement that sees Jesus at the center of everything. If you're interested in Aspen, or if you know someone else who may be, you can learn more at whchurch.org aspen. We'd love to hear more from you. Now here's this week's sermon. Good morning, Woodland Hills. You rowdy bunch of people. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Shauna, who did a great job last week at the Word. Hey, yeah. She's got it going on. All right, that, that was great, that was great. Uh, but it's good to be back. Um, we are in a series that we're calling Sure. We're looking at all these possible objections questions that arise as a result of our being in this pluralistic, post-Christian, post-modern culture that we find ourselves in. So it's about shoring up our faith and giving people reasons to believe. Um, let me say that, that uh, as we're going through this, if you have questions or, or objections that uh, we maybe haven't considered, please text those in. The number is in the bulletin, and if you don't have a texting machine, um, then you just write it out on a piece of paper and give it to the uh, desk out there, the information desk. And the last uh, sermon in the series, or last time in the series, it won't be a sermon, but we're going to just take the, the questions. And uh, Pauletti and I will be addressing those. And we love questions. I, I mean, I know a lot of places don't look positively on raising questions or raising objections, but we invite them. We really like to, to hear them. I had a couple in between services here that were uh, people raising stuff, and I just love to engage that stuff. Don't always have the answers, but I love the questions. It's part of what it means to worship God with all your mind. You know that? It's, uh, the mind is made to think. So if you're thinking, you're using it right. And so we encourage thinking around here. So this morning, we're going to address what is probably, in fact, not probably, it's absolutely the most fundamental, the most important, the most foundational question you can possibly ask. And that is, why believe in Jesus? I mean, in this pluralistic culture of ours, there's so many options out there. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you could be a Hindu or Buddhist or New Age practitioner or join Confucianism or Taoism or Sikhism or believe nothing at all. There's so many options. Uh, why, why, in this plethora of beliefs, why think Jesus Christ is Lord God, Savior of the world? Why put all your eggs in that basket? That's the question we're going to be asking. Now, I think a lot of Christians, when they're asked, why do you believe in Jesus? The response is something like, well, it just feels true. It just strikes me as true. And that is not an altogether bad answer, but it's not going to be persuasive to most unbelievers. The reason is because who doesn't feel like their beliefs are true? <laughs> if you didn't feel like your beliefs were true, you probably wouldn't be believing them, I'm thinking, right? So, of course, your beliefs feel true. Um, and you can say you have experiences with Jesus and things like that, but others claim the same things. Now, so it's not going to be evangelistic very, evangelistically very persuasive, but I, I, there is a truth to this, I think. When I was first kind of reconsidering coming back to Christianity after having lost my faith my first year, my first semester at, at the U of M, one of the things that occurred to me was that if there's, if there's any purpose to life, it's got to have something to do with love. And I think most people intuit that. And the gospel message about God becoming a human being and then dying this cursed death on the cross to save us, it is, if you understand it on its own terms, the greatest love story that has ever been told. In fact, it's the greatest love story that ever could be told. Uh, here God 
goes to the furthest, furthest extreme possible, the all-holy God becoming our sin, the perfectly united triune God becoming our, experiencing our God-forsaken curse. God experiences the opposite of himself. And there's not, he couldn't have gone an inch further than he actually went out of love for us. And the unsurpassable distance that he crossed out of love for us reveals the unsurpassable perfection of the love that he is and the love that he has for us. It is the greatest love story that ever could be told. Uh, it's why, it, it, that's why there's something inherently persuasive about the story, even apart from all historical considerations. There's something that rings true about it. It's why C.S. Lewis said that the, the Christian story, the gospel message, is the greatest myth that's ever been told. Uh, he's a, he was an expert on mythology at Oxford University, and, and, and in his view, and this is the view of a lot of mythologists, uh, myth expresses truths of the human heart. Myths, the, the greatest myths, at least, and some of them are just silly, but the greatest ones express kind of what the heart intuits should be true and what the heart longs to be true, and it gets expressed as myth. And, and because the most fundamental longing of the human heart is about love, Lewis thought this was the greatest myth ever told. But Lewis, in his early 30s, investigated the Gospels on a historical basis, asking the question, are they historically trustworthy, expecting the answer to be they're not. But to his surprise, they were. They met all the standard criteria for historicity. And, and so Lewis came to the conclusion that, that in Jesus, what we find is myth has become reality. Uh, this, this longing of the human heart actually happened in history. And, and, and so what I want to do this morning is look at some of these historical considerations. What, are the, what historical reasons might we have for thinking that this gospel message is historically true? All right? Now, there's a lot that we could say about this. It, it's, because it's such an important question, it's one that I've thought a lot about and written a lot about, and, and Paul Eddy's written some things about it. And this morning, in the next 35 minutes, I can just scratch the surface of this. Okay, I'm just going to scratch the surface. If you'd like to go deeper in this question, and if you're ever going to go deeper in a question, this would be the question to go deeper in. But we have some resources out there. Uh, I'll just refer them to you. Uh, Lord or Legend uh, is a book that Paul Eddy and I wrote. Uh, it's a popular version of this book, the academic, uh, the Jesus Legend. So if you're an egghead, get the academic one. Uh, if, if you're normal, get the early one. Or you can get Cynic Sage or Son of God. That's also kind of eggheady, but I wrote that in the mid-90s. And then there's, of course, Letters from a Skeptic, which also addresses this. So I, I would encourage you, if, if you're interested, to go deeper on this. What I'm going to share here is, is just the reasoning process that I went through um, about 40 years ago when I was starting to work my way back into the faith. And the considerations that led me to the conclusion that, that um, Jesus, in fact, is, as the gospel authors depict him as being, he is the Lord God. Okay? So I'm just going to share a snippet of it. Now, even though this is just scratching the surface, uh, it's going to be intense. It's going to be a little more informational and academic than most messages are. Uh, so get your, your thinking on, get your, get your brains activated, um, and, and I encourage you, if you can, take notes. Because if you have now 33 minutes uh, to share uh, with somebody why you're a Christian, this is, I, I, this is what I would recommend you share, something along these lines. Uh, and we, the Bible tells us we're always to be prepared to give an answer for uh, the faith that's within us, the hope that we have. Uh, explain why we believe what we believe. And in this pluralistic culture, this is absolutely crucial in terms of evangelism. You can't expect people just to think that it's true because you feel it's true. You have to give them reasons. Thinking people need reasons. Okay, so here's the deal. Here are the facts that need to be explained. Uh, 
we know that in the late 30s, early 40s, around that time, there were a bunch of Jewish disciples that went out into the world. It started in Jerusalem and then to the surrounding areas and eventually went into the greater Roman Empire. And they were proclaiming this very strange message. They were preaching that a recent contemporary of theirs named Jesus, he was the Christ, he was the Messiah. In fact, they speak about him and they uh, uh, treat him and give him the attributes of God. He, he, this is the Lord God, not just Messiah, but the Lord God. The, as the N.T. Wright says, the embodiment of Yahweh, God incarnate. Now, it's surprising that a bunch of Jews in the first century are proclaiming this message. Because if there's anything foundational to ancient first century Orthodox Judaism, it's the belief that God is not a human being and human beings are never God. It's absolutely foundational. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It was recited every morning by Orthodox Jews. And... and, and they, they, they're, they're, there's a gulf between God and human beings that is, is not to be crossed. And yet here these Jewish, monotheistic Jews are proclaiming that a recent contemporary of theirs, a public figure, he was in fact the Lord God. And forces the question, what convinced them of that? Against the most fundamental religious assumptions, what convinced them that this person here is, is God incarnate? People don't change the religious assumptions easily, not foundational ones. And yet something about Jesus convinced these people that he was, in fact, the Lord God. Now, they tell us why they believe he's the Lord God. Their message gets written down sometime between the 60s and the 80s, and these are the four Gospels. And if you read those four Gospels, what you learn is that these disciples believe he's the Lord God because he made divine claims for himself, like if you see me, you see the Father, and other crazy things like that. Um, he taught with his unprecedented authority that they had never witnessed before. No one had ever witnessed this before. He did these incredible miracles and, and, and exorcisms. And most importantly, because after he was crucified, he rose from the dead. They say the tomb was empty, and they experienced him. Now, if all that's true, we can begin to understand how they came to believe that this contemporary of theirs was God. I would think it would take something about that incredible to change this fundamental assumption. Uh, to change their fundamental religious assumptions and to come to believe that this guy was actually the Lord God. But if it's not true, how do we explain their beliefs? What accounts for this? So he, he, here's the deal. Either their, their, their claims are true or they're not true. They're false. Those really kind of exhaust the options. Um, either they're telling the truth or they're not. Now, if they're not telling the truth, there's two ways that, that you could go with this. You could either say that, that their story is intentionally false, and they know it's false. In other words, they're lying, so we could call this the lie hypothesis. Or it's unintentionally false. They're sincere in what they're proclaiming, but what they're proclaiming is just not anchored in history. Uh, what they're proclaiming is, is, is a legend. Uh, you know, maybe Jesus was a pretty impressive guy, and stories about him got to be, started to be told, and, and, and he's... Then stories take on, you know how the telephone game works or the fishing stories go. You catch a three-inch minnow and a month later it's a whale. Uh, and, and so, so maybe the stories about Jesus just kind of grew and they were passed on. And before too long, he's, he's proclaimed to be the Son of God. Those are your two options. If you're not going to think, think, say this is true, well, then, then you have to think it's either intentionally false or unintentionally false. So let's look at those two options. Uh, could it be a lie or could it be a legend? So first, let's deal with the lie hypothesis. There are four objections I would like to raise about the lie hypothesis. Could they have just gotten together and said, hey, let's fabricate a story about Jesus being this miracle-working son of God and raising from the dead or whatever? Well, here's one question you might want to ask about that. 
what possible motive could they have for doing that? Seriously, what, what was in it for them? I mean, if they got rich off of this and lived in mansions and rolled, drove around in Rolls Royces and Porsches and wore Rolex watches and fine suits, well, then maybe we could, you know, suspect that there was, they made up the story because they gained a lot from it. But that's not what happened to these folks. They were viciously persecuted. Uh, and they knew they were going to be viciously persecuted. In first century Jewish culture, you can't go out there and say that a human being is God and, and, and the Savior of the world and not think you're going to be rejected and, and ostracized and persecuted. Um, in fact, the story they're telling, which on this theory is a lie, the story they fabricated says that they're going to suffer. Jesus says if the master suffers, the servants also must expect to suffer. So they knew they were going to suffer. Why would you make up a story that's going to get you and your kids killed? That just, it's kind of crazy, don't you think? So there's no motive. And that's huge because in any court of law, if you're going to accuse anyone of anything, you've got to, the most important thing to establish is a motive, right? There's no motive. Secondly, no early critics ever accused them of, of making the story up or being insincere. Now, the, the early Jewish authorities, they viewed this kingdom movement, these Christians, as a cult. And they wanted to stamp it out as fervently as I want to stamp out a, a cult. If I saw it, it was deceptive and, and Christians were bailing on Christ to join this cult, I, I would do everything I could to expose it as being false. Um, so there's a, a lot of people had a lot of motivation for exposing this thing as being false, and they offer a lot of arguments against it. But one of the arguments they don't offer is these people are making this up. No one ever accuses them of that. If you read the Talmud, which is these early Jewish writings, you find that uh, the, the, the criticism, they never deny that Jesus existed. In fact, they never deny, and this is interesting, that he did miracles. The critics rather say that he did miracles either by he was a magician, a charlatan, a trickster, or he was casting out uh, demons and doing miracles by the power of the devil. Those are the criticisms. But no one says that the disciples made up the story about him doing miracles. Um, and that's a good indication that they, in fact, weren't making the story up. Number three, how could they pull off this lie, even if they had a motivation for doing so? Here's the thing. This isn't a story about what happened long, long ago, far, far away, once upon a time. This is a story about a recent contemporary uh, who just was here, uh, and, and he was a public figure, and they're proclaiming this message in the same vicinity that this guy supposedly lived. How do you pull off a lie in an environment like that? Uh, you're right in the same place where the guy supposedly ministered, and in fact, sometimes they appeal to their audience as having witnessed some of this stuff. Uh, even if they had a motive, how could they have pulled it off? You, know, you, you just don't have the right circumstances for that. Also, they realize that the, the brother of Jesus and the mother of Jesus are in the crowd of the disciples. Um, so this is being told, Jesus was a recent contemporary, his brother is still there, the mother is still there. Um, this could be why would James, the brother of Jesus, believe Jesus? Come on, give me a break. Uh, but but, but you just don't have the space for, to pull off a lie. Plus, on top of that, they drop a lot of big names, like Pilate. They talk about Pilate and Caiaphas, the high priest, and Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, which was equivalent to our Supreme Court, and Herod. If you're making up a lie in the very vicinity where the lie supposedly took place, where the events that you're lying about took place, you don't drop big names like that because that makes you easily refutable. People can go to these folks and ask, are they telling the truth? Um, the fact that they appealed these big names suggests that, in fact, they are telling the truth. The lie hypothesis isn't looking very good. The final thing is this. There's no record of anyone cracking under pressure. Whenever you have a conspiracy theory and things start to get tough, somebody cracks. 
like in Watergate. Someone just told me this last, between services. That, that uh, you know, they had this kind of conspiracy thing going on with Watergate in 1974. And when it came under persecution, it took these folks tw- only 12 hours before some started to turn and, and admit that they made the whole thing up. Under pressure, people cracked. Now, the early Christians not only didn't gain anything from this message, but they were subjected to unthinkable persecution. It was, they were treated and put to death so badly that the Roman emperor Tacitus, who was hardened, and he, he had seen a lot of brutal murders. I mean, Rome was, you know, they, they ruled by terror. He, 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 he was used to nasty stuff, but even he felt sorry for the Christians. For example, one of, the that, one of the things that Nero did in the 60s when he blamed this burning of Rome on the Christians and to turn the populace against them, he wanted to exterminate them, which is interesting because that shows you because this Christian thing spread very, very quickly. By the early 60s, it was found throughout the Roman Empire and could be made into a plausible scapegoat. These people were preaching fervently and persuasively. But one of the things he did is round up Christians and he would impale them on posts. And then put tar all over them and light them on fire. Uh, that's, uh, we got this, they're called Roman candlesticks. And they would have dinners. Nero would host these feasts around these people as they're, being, as they're burning to death. It, it was just unthinkable. Um, are we to believe that in the face of that, as you're watching your kids be fed the lions before you're fed the lions, or, or you're looking at a post that you're going to be impaled on, none of the early disciples said, hey, it was a joke, we made it up. I, I, I just think that's utterly, utterly unbelievable. And if, if anyone had made it up, we would have heard about it because the authorities are very invested in exposing this cult as being false. If, they, if, if John or Peter or any of the early disciples had, had cracked, they would have prayed them around town and made a big brouhaha out of it, and we'd know about it. The fact that that didn't happen suggests that they didn't make it up. Whatever else you think about these people, they were sincere in what they were preaching. So the lie hypothesis just doesn't have a lot going for it. And for good reasons, very, very few scholars actually adhere to any version of this lie hypothesis. It's just it's not plausible. So, if you're not going to be a believer, I would recommend you go with the legend hypothesis. All right? So let's look at that. Could it be that this was a story that got told and retold and retold and grew and grew and grew and Jesus became this son of God, Yahweh embodied and, and, and all of that and was worshipped and prayed to uh, as God? Because you find the early disciples doing that. How plausible is that? It's a little better than the lie hypothesis, but not much. Um, I'll raise six objections to the legend hypothesis. Number one, first century Palestinian Judaism was not a conducive environment for legend making. When it comes to the production of legends, not all cultures are equal. Some are more credulous and some are more skeptical. Ours, for example, is, is pretty skeptical. You'd have a hard time uh, uh, evolving a legend in, 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 the, in this environment. Palestinian Judaism was like that. And the first century monotheistic Palestinian Jews were like that. Because all the pagans who surrounded them, they believed all sorts of legends. And the Jews didn't want to be like them. So to, to contrast with that, they, they were very skeptical about any, any story that, 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 that seemed to be uh, legendary. Especially any story that involved God becoming a human being. They'd be very resistant to that. So you, you have the wrong culture for, for this to be produced. Secondly, if first century Palestinian Jews would have created a legend, it wouldn't have looked like this one. Legends, most theorists argue, are, are part of what, what, what generates a legend is that uh, there's a need for social reinforcement of, of, of standard values and beliefs and convictions and assumptions at a time when they're getting shaky. So they, they serve a social function. The trouble with the legendary theory about the gospel is that the gospel doesn't confirm, doesn't conform to, doesn't reinforce 
standard norms and values and convictions. In fact, it flies in the face of first century Jewish standard norms and convictions. For example, in the gospel, you may have noticed, you have a crucified Messiah who dies this cursed death, a God-forsaken death. No one expected that. Everyone thought the Messiah was going to come and be victorious and kick Roman butt and liberate Israel and all that stuff. He's not supposed to get crucified, and he's not supposed to die a cursed death. He's supposed to be supremely blessed. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that a legend would involve. Uh, Jesus makes these divine claims, as I said, and he speaks with this divine authority. Now, Jews typically expected the Messiah would be a human being who would be anointed by God and would speak with God's authority. But no one expected at all for the Messiah to himself be God and to speak with his own authority. But that's what Jesus does, and he makes these crazy divine claims that no one thought the Messiah was going to make. If you see me, you see the Father. Uh, you know, and, and I've come that all may honor the, the Son even as they honor the Father, John 5, 23. Things like that. That's why he got killed. Uh, but it, it, it confronts the, nor, the normative beliefs. It doesn't conform to them. That's not what uh, legends do. This man is worshipped. No heresy it could be worse in first century Orthodox monotheistic Judaism than worshipping a human being as, as God and praying to a human being as God. But that's what we find these early disciples doing. Uh, that's, a, a legend wouldn't naturally evolve that kind of material. Finally, an individual resurrection uh, before the end of the age. All, most Jews expected that all of humanity would be resurrected at the at end of the age, and then there would be a final judgment. No one had any conception of an individual resurrection ahead of time. Now, you could have resuscitations, like Lazarus, for example, but Lazarus died again. He had, a, he, he, he had his, his ordinary human body. The resurrection was not just about surviving death, but about being transformed and having a transformed body that would never die again. No one, no Jew at the time, had an idea of an individual resurrection. But here the disciples are saying that Jesus rose from the dead. They call him the first fruits of a coming harvest. Which forces the question, where did they get that idea from? Now, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, we can explain it. But if he didn't, how do you explain them coming up with this? Legends don't generate completely novel ideas like this. They reinforce old stuff. They don't come up with brand new uh, innovative kind of concepts. So it doesn't seem like this is the kind of legend that would be produced if a legend was going to be produced in first century Palestine. Number three, and this one's big, there's not enough time for legendary development. Legends happen because something unusual happens and then the story gets told and retold and retold over long periods of time and it just kind of grows and generation to generation. When I was uh, uh, losing my religion in my first year at the University of Minnesota, in fact, this was, I think, the final straw that got me out of the Christian game. I was sitting in a class uh, on the New Testament as literature. Uh, Professor Kraabel was teaching this. And at one point, a Christian objected to something, and I forget what he was objecting to, but the Christian was saying, well, the New Testament says that Jesus is God, and quoted some verses to that effect. And Professor Kraabel kind of smiles with his patronizing smile. Oh, you silly Christians. And, and said, well, you know, Buddha was an atheist, which is true. He didn't believe in God uh, or anything. Uh, and yet, Crowbell said, uh, we find his followers begin to worship him as God. So if, if, if an atheist could become God uh, to his followers, I don't think it's implausible that a Jewish carpenter could become God to his followers. And I was thinking, I guess I picked the wrong religion. Can't believe this anymore. But see, what I didn't know then, but I do know now, and I wonder why Crowbell didn't point this out, is that there's a world of difference between what happened to Buddha and what happened to Jesus. Uh, it, with Buddha, yes, he was worshipped as a god, not the god, and there's a big difference. 
as a divine, as one of the divine beings among some of his followers, this, this group called the, the Mahayana Buddhist. And they, they worship him as a divine being, but not as God Almighty. And it was, in a, it, it was in a culture that was conducive to legend making. You find at this time a lot of legends being told about a lot of things. So this was a rather credulous culture. But most importantly, it took 500 years before some people started to worship Buddha as a god. Legends evolved over 500 years in a culture that was conducive to legend making among some of his followers. Um, but with Jesus, you don't have, first of all, you don't have the right culture for this to happen. Uh, and you don't have 500 years. You don't even have 50 years. Right after Jesus allegedly lived and died, his disciples are proclaiming that he is resurrected from the dead. As I said, James, the brother of Jesus, is in the crowd. Mary's in the crowd where he's being treated as the Lord God. Um, that means this, this is happening in the generation right after Jesus is there. He's a recent contemporary. His brother's still alive. And by the way, if this is, I think, probably the strongest argument against the legend hypothesis. Who in this room thinks that James, the brother of Jesus, would have allowed a legend about his brother to grow into him being God? <laughs> Siblings don't do that. It's just not how the thing works. You know, my, my, my brother wasn't the son of God, but, but he, he was a great football player. And um, really, Chris was just, a, in high school, he was just outstanding. And, and I was not quite so outstanding. He had trophies all along our living room. Uh, like maybe 20, 30 or whatever. And, and I had two little tiny ones and then an arrest warrant. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so there's a little bit of sibling rivalry going on here, right? Um, and, and so this one day, one game, he rushed for like 250 yards and had four touchdowns. In the morning paper and on the front page of the sports section, it said, can anyone stop Chris Boyd? And when I saw that, I just cringed. It's like, oh, this is, it sucks to be his brother. Um, okay, then I went to school, and I walk in, and there's a lot of buzz going on about the game last night, and there's this group of girls, cheerleader, cheerleader types, and they're all just going on about Chris, he's a superstar, and then someone said, he scored five touchdowns. So I inserted myself in the middle of the crowd, I went, he was only four. I don't want legends growing up about my brother, it's bad enough as it is, all right? So James, you know, he, he would have put a stop to this, but I, interestingly enough, he's one of the believers, that, to me, is, is uh, the, the death nail to the legendary hypothesis. But I'm not going to stop here. Let's go on to number four. The Gospels claim to write history, and they read like sober history, not like legends. C.S. Lewis said, uh, he was an expert mythologist. Uh, I mentioned him earlier. Uh, he said, look, I spent my life studying legends, and if there's one thing the Gospels aren't, it's legend. They just don't read like legends. You could compare... I mean, sometime, if you have nothing else to do, uh, do this. Look up some of the legends about Jesus in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century. Because there were legends about Jesus that the story, they wrote stories about it. Compare those to the Gospels. They're just so different. These legendary things, they're, all, they're, they're fanciful. They read like legends. Like there's one, the Gospel of Peter, where Peter gets into an argument with Simon the sorcerer. And they're having this kind of, you know, duke fest. Well, Peter wins because all of a sudden he flies up in the air. And he flies around Jerusalem. You know, like a couple times, look at Super Peter, up, up, and away. I, it, it's, come on. Uh, and it, it's all, all the stories about Jesus as a little kid turning rocks into birds and throwing curses at kids he doesn't like. And they just read like legends. The Gospels don't read like that at all. They read like sober history. Now, that raises the question, well, then why do so many New Testament scholars think they are legendary? And the answer is because they have miracles. 
And to a lot of secular Western scholars, in fact, to most Western secular scholars, miracles just don't happen. And, and so any document that records miracles is by definition legendary. It gets filed into that category. Even though they don't, in no other respect do they read like legends. But the fact that they have miracles, well, that, that just settles it. If you're open to the possibility of miracles, and I would encourage you to be open to the possibility of miracles, that that could happen, or if you're just open to the possibility that this story could be true, it gives you all the reasons in the world to believe it is true. But if you make up your mind ahead of time that the story can't be true, well, then no amount of evidence is going to convince you. Accept the possibility of miracles and, and subject the Gospels to the standard historical test that you subject other, other writings to, and they give you all the reasons in the world to believe that they're actually uh, telling the truth. They claim to write sober history. Like, for example, look at the beginning of John, 1 John, the epistle of John. He says this, We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. This life, referring to the life that Jesus brought, was revealed, and we have seen it and testified to it. We declare to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. Here's the question. Is either John's telling the truth or he's not? So now we're back to the lie hypothesis. Uh, he says that this is not something that happened long, long ago, far, far away. He, in five verses, he, re, he re, reiterates four times. We've seen, this is what, we're telling you what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've touched. We experienced this. Uh, he claims to be passing on reliable history. Uh, either he is or he isn't. He gives us all the reasons in the world to believe that he is. So number five, the Gospels give evidence of being written early. All other things being equal, the earlier a document is to the events it's reporting, the more likely it is to be reliable. Now, even if you go with a liberal dating of the Gospels, put them in the 80s, by historical standards, that's still relatively early. A lot of our history writing depends on sources that are much farther removed from the events they record than, 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 than the Gospels. Like, for example, do you know that most of what we know about uh, Alexander the Great comes from one source, a guy named Arian, who's writing 400 years after the events. But he claims to be writing history. He claims to have good sources. And he, he writes like sober history. So historians genuinely believe most of what he says. The assumption in, his, in, in, in historical research is this, that if a document claims to write history and if it reads like history, then the burden of proof is on the historian as to why we shouldn't trust some aspect of it. You have to show that they had a motive for lying or something like that. But the default is, is, is that we, we, we trust it unless it gives us reasons not to. Unfortunately, because the Gospels have miracles, historians often have the opposite stance towards the, the Gospels. Uh, we will not believe it unless we have other confirming evidence that, that some aspect of it is telling the truth. Um, but there's actually a lot of evidence in the Gospels that they are passing on, that they are written fairly early. I'll give you one example. Um, Mark 15. Here, uh, Mark says that they compelled a passerby, the Romans compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry Jesus' cross because he got too weak to carry it. His name was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. I thought you guys would be going nuts after this. Isn't that exciting? I think it's so exciting. <laughs> now, okay, if you're reading the Bible devotionally, that would be like a verse you just sort of pass on. But if you're looking at it from a historical perspective, this is a very significant verse. Because look at Mark, 
explain, he has to explain who Simon of Cyrene is, and he does it by saying, this is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, that explanation only works if Mark is aware that Alexander and Rufus are known to his audience. And given that these are the sons of the guy who carried the cross, I would expect in early Christian circles, they would be kind of noteworthy figures. But that means that Mark is writing at a time when Alexander and Rufus, the son of, the sons of the guy who carried the cross, are still alive and are still in the crowd. That means he's writing within one generation of the events. And by historical standards, that is very, very early. So they give us reasons that certainly not enough time for a legend to, to, to develop. The kids of the guy who carried the cross are still in the crowd. Then number six. The Gospels give us evidence of being, of, of being written by eyewitnesses or at least of passing on eyewitness testimony. Um, there, there's a number of criteria that historians use to assess whether or not something's eyewitness or not. I'll, I'll share just a couple of these criteria and show how the New Testament conforms to it. One is this. Uh, they look for superfluous details. When, when, a, when a person's passing on an eyewitness experience, they tend to include, all, they just replay the event in their mind, and, and there's a lot of details there that really don't contribute to the storyline, but that's just part of what they experienced. So you look for superfluous detail. The New Testament, or the Gospels, are full of this superfluous detail. I'll, I'll, we'll just read one account. Uh, this is the account of, this is John's account of the empty tomb. And I love it because it, it has a lot of superfluous detail, but it also has a lot of John in it. And that also contributes to its authenticity. Let's, let's read it here. It says, early on the first day of the week, Sunday, while it was still dark, little incidental detail, Mary Magdalene, that's a detail that's interesting. Um, Magdala, Magdalene comes from Magdala, so her surname was, was, was her point of origin. And, and Magdala was known as a city of prostitution. And that's where Mary Magdalene, there's this reputation. Some scholars argue, in fact, a lot of scholars argue that she was a former prostitute. And that's interesting because usually you don't want to, in a first century Orthodox Jewish culture, have a prostitute being the first one to discover the tomb empty. The only motive you would have for having a former prostitute being discovering the tomb is that that's the way it actually happened. So Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been rolled, uh, removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter, the other and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, John was really into himself, and you see a lot of this in, in the Gospels. He just was, he's the one who wants to sit next to Jesus, you know, on the throne and all sorts of stuff. Uh, he, this is his not-so-subtle way of referring to himself throughout the Gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. What, he hated the other ones? Uh, he, he just was, but I love it because it, it humanizes this. You know, this is John here uh, with all of his warts, and it adds to the authenticity of it. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Now, what's interesting about that is a little detailed first-person plural, we. Um, because some people argue that John's resurrection account differs from uh, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they have other women discovering the tomb. But see, in John's account, there are other women there. He just focuses his attention on Mary Magdalene for whatever reason. She was the one who ran and told the disciples. Maybe she was the fastest of them. So um, it's an interesting confirming detail. And she says to them, we don't know where they've laid, they've laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, set out and went to, towards the tomb. Now look at this. The two were running together. But the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Does anyone in this room care? It's like, the. But John's kind of big on himself, and it goes on. He bent down to look in. Now, that's interesting, because we know that wealthy tombs in, in the in Palestinian, Palestinian area were, were, were uh, uh, low to the ground, because they were harder to steal from, and, and they had other you know, security stuff there. So 
he had to bend down to get in it, and that confirms this is the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, who would be wealthy, and, and this is the kind of tomb he would have had. So that's kind of confirming. He bent down to look in and saw linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Why, John, were you scared? <laughs> then Simon Peter came, following him. He just digs it in. Uh, following him, and went into the tomb. Because Peter does that. He acts first and then thinks later. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. That's weird. And who cares? But apparently Jesus, he took off the wrappings around him and laid them on a slab, and for whatever reasons we're not told, took off the thing around his head and folded it up and put it in the corner. A detail that's just there, uh, uh, but it contributes to the, this is what you'd get from an eyewitness perspective. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, third time, he just can't help himself, also went in and he saw and believed. Oh, Peter didn't believe, but he saw and believed. So this has got a lot of John in it. It's got a lot of detail in it, and it's just, it has all the ring of an eyewitness report. So you look for superfluous detail. You also look for unexplained detail. Uh, in legends, you can have details, but they always contribute to the storyline. And they never raise questions that they don't answer. But the Gospels are full of all this stuff where you go, why? What's up with that? Like, for example, you know, Jesus cast this demon out of the, the, the garrison man, and the demon was legion because there was a lot of them. And they go into these pigs, and the pigs run off a cliff into the Sea of Galilee and drown. What up with that? And I'm told pigs are good swimmers. I've never tested it, but I, I, I've been told that they're good So why do these pigs drown? And why, why did Jesus have, allow the demons to go into the swine? Was he protecting people from, so they wouldn't go into people? And why did the, the swine commit suicide? Did the demons kill them? Why would they kill their own hosts? Uh, I, I, there's so many unanswered questions, but that's the beauty of it, is because that's the kind of thing you get when you just, the only motive they have for telling the story is that this is the way it actually happened. Another example is Jesus shows up to Mary Magdalene after the resurrection, and Mary goes to hug him, and Jesus says, don't touch me. Why? He says, well, because I've not yet ascended. Well, once you ascend, I'm really not going to be able to touch you. So I should touch you now while I have a chance. He doesn't explain it. I suppose there is an explanation, but I don't know what it is. But that's the kind of thing you get with an eyewitness report. Superfluous detail, then you get uh, uh, unexplained detail, and finally, you look for counterproductive detail. Uh, details that not only don't go anywhere, but they actually count against the story itself. Things that you would think that, that a storyteller would make up unless they really are interested in telling the truth. So, for example, the disciples consistently throughout the Gospels look really dumb. They're dull. They're just dim-witted. Jesus has to repeat himself over and over again. I'm going to go suffer and die. I'm going to get crucified. And then when it happens, they're shocked. And it, it, it's like going in one ear and out the other, which means that there's nothing between the ears. They just were kind of dim on a lot of different accounts. Not just Peter, but all of them. You know, John, at one point, Jesus says, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. You know, turn the other cheek. A little while later, they're in Samaria, and the Samaritans reject their gospel. So John goes over to Jesus and says, can we call down fire from heaven and incinerate them? Please, pretty please. Jesus must have just been going like this. He must have had the patience of the Son of God, because these folks just didn't get it. It's surprising that that's in there because the disciples are the ones telling the story. I bet they would like to have taken that out or doctored it up a little bit, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them. So it's surprising that you get this kind of level of honesty. The only motive they would have for showing how stupid they were is because they actually were that stupid, and they're interested in telling history. (laughs) 
here's the thing. Jesus' family doesn't believe during his lifetime. Now, this is really weird. Both Mark and John report that Mary and James and other brothers went out to get Jesus because they thought he'd gone mad, and they were worried that he was going to get himself killed. Because if you go walk around first century Judaism saying that if you see me, you see the Father and things like that, you, you're going to get killed. And so they, they don't believe him. They think he's crazy. Now, that's really strange. Mary, didn't you have that angelic visitation, and you're the only woman who ever gave birth as a virgin, for crying out loud? How can you be doubting this? And James, didn't you see the miracles that Jesus was doing? I think Jesus, James did see it, but like I said, sibling rivalry. He'd be the last person in the world to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I don't blame him. Um, and Mary, you know, it's been, three, it's been three decades since she had that visitation. And I could see a mother, you know, she wasn't told that Jesus was going to make these divine claims and get crucified. And so as she's seeing her son get in danger, uh, I could see her thinking, well, maybe he's gone crazy. We've got to bring him home. I don't know about that Son of God stuff I heard three, three decades ago, but I have to go get him. But it's the kind of thing, if you're trying to sell the story that Jesus is the Son of God, this isn't the kind of thing that you'd have in there. It certainly is not the kind of thing that a legend would produce. Legends don't produce things that actually seem to work against their own story. The only reason they have for including this is that that's the way it actually happened. You have women being the first ones to discover the tomb empty. Now, this is interesting because in first century Jewish culture, I mean, it was an incredibly sexist culture. So, sorry, women. Uh, women weren't believed. They, 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 everyone assumed that they just make up lies and tell tales and things like that. Um, a woman couldn't testify in court and under ordinary circumstances to a crime she saw unless there was a man to corroborate her testimony. Isn't that sick? But that's how it was. And yet, it's women, according to the Gospels, who discover the tomb empty. And why is it women? Because the men are scared, and they're hiding back away. They don't want to get out in public. They're scared. And, but the women have the bravery to go pay their respects. The only reason that you would have women, given the low credibility that they had, the only reason you have, only have women, and one of them perhaps is a prostitute, is that that's the way it actually happened. A legend wouldn't have evolved something so countercultural as to have women uh, discover the tomb empty while the guys are scared. And finally, on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is, I think, probably the most profound verse in the Bible, but it's not obvious. If you're going to have a legend about Jesus being the Son of God and the, the embodiment of God, and you're talking to a group of monotheistic Jews, the last thing you're going to make up is that on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That seems to undermine your whole story, doesn't it? Um, the only motive they could possibly have had for reporting that is that that actually happened, and they're interested in reporting what actually happened. It's not the kind of thing that a legend would have evolved. It's the opposite of that. So it seems to me, folks, in my humble opinion, the legendary hypothesis doesn't fare all that much better than the lie hypothesis. Neither of those, I think, are very plausible. And if the two ways of believing the story is false are implausible, you are left with one option and one option only, and that is to believe it's true. And if it's true, well, folks, that changes everything, doesn't it? It changes absolutely everything. It means that, it means that this thing is real. Um, it act, this is actually true. We've got good evidence that, it, that myth became history, as C.S. Lewis said. Uh, it, it, we, this is real. God, the creator God, God, capital G, the supreme being, the eternal one, loved us and became a human being and died on a cross, a cursed death, in order to be in an eternal relationship with us. That's real. If this story is true, and we've got all the reasons in the world to believe it is true, we have, we're created by a God who loves us to that extreme, to that extent. That changes everything. 
If this is true, folks, this is the most important fact in all of history. In fact, if this is true, really, there is no other fact that's important compared to this one. If this is true, this is the center of everything. This is the reason for everything. If this is true, then the love that we long for and the love that we, we, we intuit should be true is actually true. It was incarnated in Jesus Christ. And if this story is true, then all of the longings of our heart, all the aspirations of our heart, uh, all the intuitions of our heart find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. If this is true, then, then Jesus is the reason why we exist. He's the purpose for everything. And if this is true, folks, it means that we have been uh, invited into the greatest love story that ever could be told. And this story goes on forever and ever and ever. And we've got all the reasons in the world to think that it actually is true. Amen. It means you're, you're part of the greatest love story that you could ever imagine, which means your future is looking very good. Uh, if, 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 if you believe this is true, your future is looking very bright. Right now, things may suck to high heaven. You may be going through a lot of nasty, nasty stuff. You may have no hope of, for anything else in this world, but your future is looking very, very bright because this love story goes on forever and ever and ever. Jesus Christ is the incarnation of all our heart's longings. If this is true, then the only appropriate response is to surrender our everything to him. The last thing that's appropriate is if, if God became a human being and died this death for us on the cross, the last thing we should do is give him our half, uh, make him part of our life. He's kind of a nice addendum to everything else. No, 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 no. If God poured himself out like this, if this is true, then the only proper response is to pour our whole self out to him, to make this the center of our existence, the reason why we live, the thing that makes us feel good about life and good about ourselves. He's got to be the center of everything. And folks, I really believe the story is true. If you think the story is false, I would like to hear why. Bring it on. Here's the thing. 40 years ago, no, 40 years ago, I, I, I came to the conclusion. You can't prove beyond any shadow of a possible doubt that Jesus was as the disciples portray him to be. So it takes faith to go beyond the evidence to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. But folks, that's true of the other two options as well. It takes faith to believe that this is a lie or faith that it, 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 it's a legend. In fact, I came to the conclusion 40 years ago as I was working my way back into the faith that it would take more faith for me to believe it was a lie and, or believe it was a legend than it takes to believe that these guys are just telling the truth. Uh, yes, I have to go beyond the evidence, but it seems to me that these other two hypotheses have to go against the evidence. Uh, and so it seems to me this is the best option on the table. And the only proper response is to surrender your life to him. If you're here this morning, or podcasters, if you're listening to this and you're not a believer, would you please consider the argument I gave here? And again, this is just, this, I'm scratching the surface here, but, but, but consider this. And, and if you're here this morning in this auditorium, and you, there's something in you that's saying, maybe I should really take this seriously, maybe I should sell out, uh, I encourage you after the service to come up here, and we'll have some uh, folks up here by the altar, and they would love to explain to you what it is to become a follower of Jesus. For others, maybe you've been kind of on the fence. Uh, you've, you've been the half, doing the halfway gig. I pray in response to this message, you take this so seriously because this is real. We're talking reality, capital R. And, and, and this, this is real stuff we're talking about, and it deserves our all. Amen? All right, we just stand. As we leave here, uh, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And uh, if you have any need here that could use prayer, and if you have a need that could use prayer, come up and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. And as I said before, if you're not a committed follower of Jesus, but there's something in your mind and heart that's saying you ought to do that. Come up here and talk to these folks, and they'll, they'll, they'll explain it to you. As we leave here, folks, can we do it as a people who are committed to surrendering our all to him and to harboring in our hearts the reason why we believe what we believe and be prepared to share that with others? 
who have a right to hear reasons. Saying it feels true doesn't cut it. Know why you believe it's true and be willing to share it. Go out and love on your neighbors in Jesus' name. God bless you guys.